A Map of Life by Frank J. Sheed, written in 1937. Introduction. The traveler through a strange country usually gets vivid impressions of individual things, but only a confused impression of the country in its totality. He remembers this mountain and that stream and the other village, but how one is related to the other and the general winding of roads that he has barely glimpsed cannot in the nature of things stand clear in his mind, and a map of the whole country seen at the end of his travels may very well be full of surprises and is, in any case, a totally new view. In very much the same way, a traveler through life gets vivid, sometimes extremely vivid, impressions of things near at hand, confused impressions of things seen at a distance or only heard of, but of the whole plan of life, no idea at all. In his mind will be a jumble of facts, tossed about in any order, God, sin, church-going, disease, sacraments, suffering, the treason of friends, hostilities, death and the fear of death, money and the loss of it, God made man, and so on without end. But which of these things are big things, and which of them are little, he will not know with certainty. The things that have come nearest to himself will seem big things, the remoter things will seem small. And of the relations of these things one to another, how one thing agrees with or conflicts with another, of all this, merely by dint of living, he will have only the most confused and uncertain impression. In fact, it may easily happen that a man who merely lives, and neither reflects nor is taught, does not even suspect relationships but thinks of all things as accidents with no reason in themselves save that they happened, and no connection with each other save that one came earlier and one came later. Because of this confusion, I propose to try to make what may roughly be called a map of life, a scale map in which the principal natural features will be shown in their right proportions and the roads between them drawn in. This map will not be of my own drawing, fruit of my own experience of life, nor will it be of any man's drawing. It will be a transcript of what God, the author of life, has revealed as to the meaning of the whole and the relation of the parts. Nor will it be a demonstration. Maps do not prove, but only state. There are only two reasons for trusting a map. One is the authority of the mapmaker. The other is one's own experience, when one has traveled the road with its guidance. The second is normally of less practical value. We need to be assured of a map's trustworthiness at the beginning of a journey. A map, therefore, must be accepted or rejected according to the confidence the mapmaker deserves. In this instance, fortunately, the mapmaker is God. In this effort to set out the plan of life, there will be no attempt anywhere to prove the truth of what is said, but only to state what, according to the church he founded, God has said. 1. The Problem of Life's Purpose To the detached observer, man is something of a curiosity. He lives in two worlds at once, and this not as a being who belongs to one world and has simply got tangled up in another, but as a being who belongs essentially to both of them. God who alone exists in his own right, who is all-knowing and all-powerful, who exists without the shadow of limitation, made all things. Considering the beings God has made, we find two broad categories, spirit and matter. Spirit is being which has the power of knowing and willing. Matter is being which has not these powers. There is a more obvious but less important distinction between them. Matter can be perceived by the senses, spirit cannot. Of God's creatures, there are some that are pure spirits, angels, with no material part. There are some that are purely material, animals, plants, stones, and the rest, with no spiritual part. Between them is man. In him alone spirit and matter are united. By his soul he is a spirit as the angels are. 
By his body, he is part of the material universe, and, as has already been said, he belongs to both worlds by his essence. He is not simply a spirit who is for the moment tied down to or tied up in a body. It is of his very nature to be a union of matter and spirit. The soul of man is not more essentially a partner in the human compound than his body, but it is the more important partner. For in the first place, it is the principle of life in the body. It remains with the body so long as the body is capable of being animated by it. The body corrupts whereas the soul continues in existence. And in the second place it knows and wills, that is, it has the two faculties of intellect and will by which it can enter into conscious and determined relationship with all that is. Such a being, then, is man. It is life as it concerns man that is the business of this map. We shall understand the map better if we grasp its universal necessity. A man may very well say that whether there is or is not a divine revelation as to the meaning of human life, it is at any rate only of academic interest, desired by none save the dwindling number who like things cut and dried and take comfort in the voice of authority. For a man who reasons thus, we must show that an acceptance of the revelation of God as to the meaning of life has a bearing not only upon holy living, but even upon sane living, that only those who believe in such a revelation can shape their own lives correctly or help their fellow men. Those who do not accept the revelation, even if they have the best will in the world, which not all men have, can neither direct their own lives aright nor help other men, save accidentally and within a very narrow field. From such men the world has little to hope and an immense amount to fear, and into their hands the world is tending more and more to fall. In one word, the reason for their helplessness, both in relation to themselves and in relation to others, is that they do not know what a man is. You do not truly know what anything is until you know what it is for. Knowing what a thing is made of, even knowing whom a thing is made by, these things are but scanty knowledge, impotent of themselves to lead to fruitful action. The complete knowledge demands a knowledge of purpose. A very crude instance may make this sufficiently obvious truth still more obvious. Suppose a man who has never shaved, and suppose that he suddenly discovers a razor. He does not know what it is, but he discovers that it cuts. Whereupon he uses it for cutting wood. He does not cut a great deal of wood, and he ruins the razor, leaving it fit only for the scrap heap. The point is that he has used it without knowing its purpose and save by accident such use must always be misuse. And in the face of the general proposition that nothing can be used aright until its purpose is known, the man who uses anything at all without such knowledge is acting blindly. He may mean well, but well-meaningness is not a substitute for knowledge of purpose. Obviously, the perfect way to know the purpose of a thing is to find out from its maker. Any other method leaves too many loopholes for error. Apply this principle to man himself. We cannot use ourselves aright nor help any other man till we know what man is for. We can meddle with him, tinker with him, mean well to him, but save in a limited way we cannot help him. Here we must make a short digression. There are only two ways in which anything can come to be. Either it is intentional or accidental. That is, either someone intended it or it merely chanced. The thing that is intentional has a purpose. Accidents have no purpose. Humanity, like other things, must be either an accident, and so purposeless, or else have been made with intent. Catholics know that man was made, and made by an intelligent being who knew the purpose of his own action. Further, God who made us, and knew what he made us for, has told us what he made us for. Accepting his word, we know the purpose of our existence, 
and we can proceed to live intelligently according to it. Short of this knowledge, intelligent living is not possible for us. For apart from God's own statement as to what He had in mind when He made us, we have no way of knowing. We cannot tell ourselves, the scientist can tell us what we are made of, or rather what our bodies are made of, but he cannot tell us what we are made for. And by comparison with this altogether vital matter, what he has to say, interesting as it is, is but trivial. In other words, short of God telling us, we cannot be told, and short of being told, we cannot know. We can, of course, theorize, or in plain English, guess. There is one and only one colorable alternative to a revelation from God as a means of knowing the purpose of man's existence. We might simply take human nature as it is, study it, come to a full and accurate knowledge of it. We could then reason from man's nature as to the particular purpose for which a being of that nature must have been made. Or, avoiding the idea of purpose altogether, we might reason as to the best use to which a being of those powers could be put. This, I say, is a colorable alternative. Indeed, for one who is unaware of the revelation of God, it is the highest exercise of the intellect. With this method, had God not told us what was in his mind, we should have had to rest content. Yet we may be glad that he did not so leave us, since it is liable to error in many ways, of which two are of capital importance. 1. There may be error in the reading of human nature. Most of men's efforts to read human nature and frame a system of life in accord with it err by inability to seize the whole. One part of human nature is isolated, the rest ignored. Further, as between various uses to which powers might be put, there can be no deciding which is higher and which is lower, save in the light of the purpose of the whole being. Those uses which serve the purpose are good, those which hinder it are bad. 2. The second objection is far more important and is, indeed, fundamental to the understanding of the whole of what is to come. Even if human nature were fully understood with no shadow of error, the purpose of man's life could be deduced from it only if the purpose of man's life were contained in it, that is, if man's purpose simply meant the highest activity possible to his own nature. But supposing the purpose of human life is some activity or state higher than man's nature, then we cannot find it simply by studying his nature. And God has, in fact, taught that he destines us not for something of which our nature is in itself capable, and which might, therefore, as I have said, be deduced from our nature, but for something to which he in his generosity chose to lift us. And this, obviously, cannot be deduced from any study of us. One may deduce the incidence of justice, but not of generosity. Given, then, that apart from the revelation of God we cannot know with certainty what is the purpose of our existence as man, the only thing left for the one who does not believe in such revelation is to choose an object of life, to decide for himself what he will use his life for. But given the myriad of possibilities before every man, the chances are that he will choose the wrong one and so spoil his life, and if he is in a position to control the destinies of others, whether as a king or a dictator or simply as the father of a family, the disaster will be very great, and the more zealous and energetic he is, the greater will the disaster be. In no case is intelligent living, that is, living consciously for the true purpose of our being, possible to us unless we are told by God what the purpose is. It is therefore the very highest act of our intellect thus to grasp the revelation of God, since this is knowledge that we must have, and knowledge that we must either be told or do without. It is foolish to stigmatize this acceptance as a denial of freedom or a form of intellectual suicide. The object of thought is truth. If a particular piece of truth is necessary, can be known with certainty by the teaching of another, and cannot be known otherwise, 
then a man is really acting suicidally in rejecting the truth merely because he did not find it for himself. He is preferring the exercise of the means to the attainment of the end. If a man knows what knowing means, he cannot even think he knows man's true purpose save through the revelation of God. And so he cannot direct his own life rightly, nor can he help others. Here the philanthropist might say, I am a practical man doing the immediate job. Whether there is a God or not, here is a man suffering, here is a wrong to be righted. But this is not practical, this dashing at the job without the necessary preliminary theorizing. For if you do not know what men are, that is, are for, how do you know what is good for them? That thing is good for any being which helps it to achieve the true purpose of its nature. How can you help men to that if you do not know what their true purpose is? Nor should we be misled by the fact that there are certain obvious things that such a man can do. Principally, he can relieve bodily suffering. But all his aid is first aid. Of profound, permanent, certain help to man, he can do nothing. In fact, the general effort of those who thus would help their fellow men with no thought of God is almost exclusively confined to bodily well-being or the relief of bodily suffering. And when they approach such questions as birth control, divorce, the killing of the incurable, and a dozen others, it is beyond their power really to answer the question raised. For these things are right or wrong according as they help or hinder a man in the achievement of the purpose of his being, and it is not so much as possible to express an intelligent opinion on them save in the slight of a sure knowledge of what the purpose of life is. When the philanthropist is not merely unaware of God's revelation, but definitely convinced that man is only the matter of his body, his position is easier. If he has to decide upon the question of divorce, for instance, then for him the only problem is whether an accidental collection of electrons and protons, called for convenience a man, will function more harmoniously with that second collection of electrons and protons, which it is at present living with, or with some third collection of electrons and protons. Such a question is simple enough. Simple because it really does not matter. But if man is more than that, a being with a true purpose in life, then all that is said in ignorance of his purpose is quite irrelevant. On all the moral teaching of those who have not the Catholic revelation, there lies this mark of superficiality. The only rule that appears to be of universal application is that suffering must always be relieved. But even this, one dare not call a principle, since it is not related to any true view of life. By good fortune, it is a rule that often works to the advantage of the sufferer, and in the one who exercises it, it bears witness to a true virtue. Indeed, the relief of suffering is one of the highest rules of the Christian life. But apart from a right view of the purpose of human life, it is a blind rule, and there is no virtue in blindness. Carried too far, as our age is tending more and more to carry it, the rule can work immeasurable evil, for there are things that are worse than suffering. Two questions, then, are to be asked of any religious or social teacher who offers some system of life for the acceptance of men. The first is, what, according to you, is the purpose of man's life? The second is, how do you know? When he answers the second, be very insistent. Unless he says, God has revealed it, then he is wasting time. If he says God has revealed it, then he must be prepared to show that God has done so. To both questions, the Catholic Church has an answer. In this book, I am concerned only with the first and with certain things that flow from it. Life and all the things of life have a meaning in relation to man, in themselves, in relation to one another. What the meaning is, God has told us. We need to know it. There is no other way of knowing. This book is simply an attempt to transcribe what God has said. Chapter 2. The Problem of Life's Laws 
The argument of the first chapter went to show that the very minimum required for intelligent living, namely the knowledge of the purpose of our life, is dependent upon a revelation from God. That without such a revelation we cannot know our purpose, and so cannot have any means of testing the value or the significance of anything that we do. As I have said, this is a minimum, and reflection on experience is sufficient to show that something more is needed from God than a bare revelation of what He made us for. Very early in life, man becomes aware that he is living in a world of laws. The series of happenings which lead him to the conclusion are nearly all unpleasant. But whether he ever formulates the idea or crystallizes it in a word, or whether he remains merely the practical man, in the usual sense of the unreflective man, he acquires the certainty that there is a whole series of conditions and results in the world which may fairly well be counted upon. This certainty becomes part of the very texture of his mind. Thus he discovers that fire burns, that hunger weakens, that rain wets, that bodies fall towards the earth and not towards the sky, and so with a myriad other things. If he reflects at all upon these laws, he realizes that they are not of his choosing. In fact, that, in many cases, they are the reverse of what he would have chosen, but that their power is in no way affected by his disapproval. There is no way in which he can get free of them. He can act as though they did not exist, in which case they damage or even destroy him. If he is a sane man, he may dislike them, but he accepts them, and he does his best to live in accordance with them. In any case, there is no such thing as freedom from them, but only freedom within them. And freedom within them can be attained only by one who knows them. This knowing them is always a matter of discovery and not invention. In other words, one finds out what they are, and one cannot in any way make them to be. All this is obvious enough as applied to the body. Men, however, do not always make the application of precisely the same truths to the soul, yet the parallel is exact. As there are laws that govern the body, so there are laws, in particular the moral law, which govern the soul. The moral law is no more made by man, or dependent on the approval of man, or in any way escapable by man, than the material law. Man can ignore the moral law as he can ignore the material law, but the result in both cases is his own diminution or destruction. There is no freedom from the moral law, but as with the material law, there is freedom within it, the only freedom possible to man. And a condition of this freedom is the same as in the other case, namely, knowledge of what the law is. In the light of all this, it is possible to judge the extent of folly of those who talk of emancipation from the moral law, or from any particular article of the moral law. And because this talk has folly at its root, it runs to folly in every leaf and flower, to take only one instance, one hears the phrase that the modern man is no longer to be bound by the 2,000-year-old law of marriage. It is as though one were to say that it was beneath the dignity of modern man to be bound by the even older law of gravity. For the question is not whether the law is old, but whether it is a law. A man might very well say that he would not be bound by the law of gravity, yet he would be well advised to keep his affirmation within the sphere of words. Let him push it to act, and he will no longer be a modern man, but a corpse part of that history which, in his newness, he so heartily despises. Another category of this folly is the not uncommon assumption that this or that human authority may abrogate the law, even if the individual would be a little reckless in declaring it not binding upon himself. But the state, to take the most obvious example of all, cannot in any way affect the moral law. The state declares that a man may, in certain circumstances, leave his wife and marry another, but this is adultery. To assume that therefore adultery is no longer harmful to the soul is unduly optimistic. State action can no more make adultery harmless to the soul than it can make prussic acid harmless to the body. 
Men have come into a collision with the law of God. The law of God does not suffer from the collision. The conclusion, then, is that we are living in a world of law, material law and spiritual law, and that successful living involves obedience to this law, which, in its turn, supposes a knowledge of it. If it is asked how we are to know what the law is, experience suggests an answer. Since men were men, they have had their own bodies and the world of matter under their eyes, and they have been at work discovering what the laws are that govern matter. Yet on this most obvious ground, men are constantly changing their views, learning laws that till yesterday were not so much as suspected, discarding what all men before them had held to be laws, certain and irrevocable. So that it is clear enough that, left to themselves, men will make no more than a tolerably successful job of this discovering of the laws of matter. Much more, then, it is evident that, left to themselves, men will fail to discover, with any fixity or certainty, the laws that govern the soul, since the soul is so much less obvious to man, so very much more inaccessible in its essential being. And the failure in this sphere is far more serious than in the other. For disaster to the body is the lesser evil, and is only an anticipation of the disaster that awaits all bodies inevitably. But disaster to the soul, because it is the nobler part of man, because disaster is not its inevitable destiny, because it is not only the nobler part but the decisive part, is a thing not to be faced. And, in fact, given that no one but the lawmaker can know with certainty the text of the law he has made, there is immense food for thought in this, that God, author alike of the laws that govern matter and the laws that govern spirit, has left man very largely to discover, with an endless accompaniment of disaster, the laws that govern matter, as though the discovery of these were a trivial thing, not vital but has revealed to man the laws that govern spirit because they are essential laws, whose breach is fraught with eternal catastrophe. Thus, not only that man may know the purpose of his life, but also that he may know the nature of the life through which he must strive to his goal, a teaching from God is something vitally necessary. It does not follow that even with this knowledge a man will always act rightly. The will of man is capable of choosing a course of action contrary to what he knows to be right. And even if the will is right, the intellect may err in applying its knowledge of purpose and law to a particular set of circumstances. Where the law of God applies explicitly, there is no problem. But in a situation to which the law has not been applied by God in expressed terms, and it is a question of men applying a principle, then they may easily go astray, misled by custom or environment or inclination. Thus, for example, a Catholic might, with excellent intentions, support a bad social or economic or judicial system. But for all that, he possesses the true principles, and with these there is always the possibility of rectification. Without them, there is none. So that right living, though not guaranteed by, is yet totally dependent upon knowledge of purpose and law, and therefore upon God. It may be well at this point to say one thing further about freedom and about the dependence of man upon God. Freedom is usually defined as the power to do what one likes. Accepting the definition one sees instantly that the power to do what one likes may be the goal, but doing what one likes is not necessarily the road to the goal. In the bodily order, eating what one likes, for instance, may very well be the very solidest hindrance to doing what one likes, and a certain prelude to suffering what one very much dislikes. It is only by doing as one ought that one attains a condition in which one has true physical freedom, the uttermost freedom possible to the body. And the same truth applies exactly to the soul, Freedom, then, is not to be attained by doing what we like unless by chance we like what we ought. Which brings us back to the true purpose of our being and the laws by which our being may progress towards it. Apart from that is only loss. It is true that this argues a very extreme degree of dependence upon God, 
a dependence to which not all men resign themselves easily. Yet no view of life will work, because no view of life is intelligent, which does not accept both the fact of our dependence upon God and the rightfulness of it, that God has no duty whatever to us, and we have no rights whatever against God. If a carpenter makes a chair, the carpenter owes nothing to the chair. The chair has no rights against him, and he may do as he pleases, sit upon it or set a match to it. But God made us, and he made us more fully, so to speak, than any carpenter ever makes a chair. For the carpenter, at any rate, does not make the wood, and there is always the possibility that his rights over the chair may, to some extent, be limited by an unpaid bill for the wood. But God made us, using no material at all. Therefore we have no more rights against him than the chair has against the carpenter. Occasionally, it seems to us that the fact that we have intelligence and free will does, in some way, make a difference, giving us some claim that the chair has not. But God gave us these gifts, too. They are as much his creatures as we, and therefore they give us no claim against him. God could not contract a duty towards us by giving us more. But though God has no duties towards us, yet he has a duty towards himself, the duty of acting intelligently. Intelligent action means action with a purpose. And God who gave us intelligence and gave us free will, thereby put himself under obligation, so to speak, to treat us in accordance with that which he had given us. Our dependence, therefore, upon God, though total, absolute, and without any shadow of exception, is not the dependence of machines upon a mad mechanic or of slaves upon a mad king. It is the dependence of free men upon an all-wise and all-loving creator, who knows their being more intimately than they know it themselves, who knows wherein the fulfillment of their being lies, and whose will it is that the fulfillment should actually be achieved. As we shall see, his will for them is even more than that, a fulfillment immeasurably beyond anything that the mere powers of their being would lead men to dare to hope or even to conceive. Chapter 3. Heaven In this third chapter, we come at last to the map itself, or rather, to a first general outline of it. We must begin at the end. For this map is the map of a road, and it is only in the light of its end that any road makes sense. If you ask why it turns this way or that, the answer will always lie in a consideration of the place it is going to. Till you know that, you cannot even know that it is a road, but only that it looks like one. Still less can you know whether it is a good road or a bad road. Therefore, if this map is to be drawn rightly, we must begin at the end. What is the right end of the life of man? In other words, what should the road of life lead to? Faced with this primary question, men have tried various ways of arriving at the answer. The atheist makes an effort to place the end of the road at death. The road of every man's life runs inevitably to earth in a newly opened grave. But atheists, at any time in the world's history, are exceptional, almost freakish. And for the generality of men, the question of what is the end of life is simply the question of what comes after death. In this, at any rate, the generality of men are right. But after this initial correctness, there is every variety of error. Some men have decided to work out for themselves what they think lies on the other side of the door of death, with the ill success that must always attend any effort to arrive theoretically at a true idea of an unvisited country. Some have decided that whatever lies on the other side of the door, there is no need to worry about it, but merely to await death and hope for the best with a fair certainty that things will turn out well enough. A small number, even smaller than the number of atheists perhaps, have in all ages tried to find out by consulting the souls of the dead, which logically is at any rate a far better method than merely theorizing about the life after death. For all that, the method is fraught with endless danger of deception, and for all the thousands of years of its history, 
The results are so meager that spiritualism can hardly be conceived as anything more worthy than a kind of peeping through the keyhole. The Catholic has always realized that as to what comes after death, the only way of finding out is to be told by someone who has personal knowledge of the other world. No other way could possibly be right. So far, the spiritualist has hold of a truth, but of all the beings who may have such a personal knowledge, one has it supremely, God, and God, the author of this life and the next, has told us of the future that he has prepared for us. The road of life runs through this life to heaven. Heaven, then, is the end of the road, and we can only understand the road if we have some knowledge of heaven, the place to which it leads, and for which it was made. At this stage, no more will be said of heaven than is necessary for the mapping of the road. A slightly fuller treatment of heaven, in its own right, and not simply as something which makes this life on earth comprehensible, must be reserved for the final chapter. Outside the Catholic Church, the idea of heaven has suffered because the only section of Protestants who talk very much about it, Protestants of the nonconformist type, having no theology on the subject, have been forced more and more to use the imagery of Scripture. For centuries they have talked, preached, and sung of heaven as a place of harps, hymns, crowns of gold, streets of jasper. These, of course, are symbols intended to convey a vivid impression of endless happiness. In themselves, they give no notion of the life of heaven any more than pictures of men with wings give a notion of the being of angels. As symbols, they are made only as ornaments to a great body of teaching, in which the life of heaven is expressed in its true relation to the nature of God and the nature of man. Lacking this true teaching, owing to its suspicion of theology, Protestantism has for centuries had no food for its mind save the symbols. And symbols, while an admirable stimulus to the imagination, are not food for the intellect. The result is that for the average man, heaven, thought of in terms of endless hymn singing, is not attractive. For the moment, then, we must neglect the symbols altogether. Heaven consists in the knowledge of God and in the love of God flowing from and proportion to that knowledge. As such, it means perfect happiness. If we consider what brings happiness to man in this life, we shall find certain very clear principles. Happiness is always in the soul. It may be caused by some condition of the body, but the body as such is neither happy nor unhappy. It is the soul that knows of the good or ill condition of the body, and rejoices in the good or suffers in the ill. In that happiness of the soul which comes from some condition of the body, the condition always is that the bodily organs are functioning properly. Let them cease to do so, and the state of the soul which we call unhappiness is nearly certain to result in some measure. Not quite certain, be it noted. The soul can triumph even over the body's agony. This fact, that the soul is the seat of happiness, is further shown when we consider a situation in which the body is functioning properly, but the soul itself is perturbed. In such a situation, the state of the soul is decisive. The man is unhappy. A very simple instance is where the man has all, not only that he needs, but even that he wants to drink and eat and wear and entertain himself with. The death of a friend is instantly sufficient to plunge him into the deepest unhappiness. That being so, it is necessary to consider in what lies the happiness that comes from the soul itself. Like that which comes from the body, it always results from a proper functioning of a faculty. The intellect knows truth and is happy in the knowledge. The will loves goodness and is happy in the love. The soul of man sees and rejoices in beauty, beauty of sound, beauty of color, beauty of form, above all, beauty of spirit. In heaven, all this is carried to its very highest point. The intellect, whose property is to possess the knowledge of truth, now knows God himself, who is supreme truth. The will, whose property it is to love goodness, is now in immediate contact with God himself, who is supreme goodness. The whole soul is therefore functioning at its very highest, and happiness is the inevitable result. Our imagination may find in this statement 
that the happiness of heaven consists in the direct knowledge and direct love of God, a doctrine that it feels to be deeply unsatisfying. To the ordinary man, such a description of heaven seems far too spiritual, too remote from the kind of happiness that springs to his mind the moment he starts to think of happiness at all. It is therefore well to analyze just one stage further what happiness involves. In looking at a sunset or in listening to a piece of music, the soul of man may be lifted, if only for a moment, to an absolute ecstasy of happiness. Yet no man can go on endlessly looking at the same sunset, and an endless repetition of the same piece of music might very easily lead to madness. Both these effects, the original joy and the too rapid fatigue, come from the same source. The beauty that man enjoys in the sunset and the music is a beauty that God himself has created, and it is to this that the soul of man responds. But because God has created it, it is only a shadow or a reflection of that beauty which, immeasurably, is in God himself, or more truly, is God himself. Man, therefore, who has rejoiced in the beauty that God has placed in the sunset, will rejoice immeasurably more in God himself, the author and source of all beauty. And whereas he grew weary of the sunset, which was not the beauty of God himself, but only a created reflection of it, of the infinite beauty of God himself, he will never grow weary. The Supernatural Life This, then, is some idea of the end of the road. What bearing has it on the road? To many, the connection is obscured by a truth which is only one truth, and not the most important. Heaven is thought of as the reward of a good life. As such, it has only a kind of accidental connection with this life. It is better to think of heaven not only as a reward, but also as the result of a good life. A simple comparison may make clear the distinction. If a student passes an examination, he may be rewarded in one of two ways. He may either get a mere prize, a tennis racket, say, or a volume of Browning, or he may be admitted to a further course of study, which his success in the examination has proved him to be fitted for. The tennis racket has no real relation to the examination he has passed, but the further course of study has. It is a true result of it. To an immense number of people, heaven is rather like the tennis racket, and, as such, is not really understood at all. But think of it as the further course, resulting from a life well lived, and instantly the connection is seen. This life is not only a test which a man must pass in order to obtain the reward of heaven, it is a preparation which man must successfully undergo in order to live the life of heaven. From this it follows that whatever is necessary to enable man to live the life of heaven must, in some way or other, be acquired by man in this life. Otherwise, this life would not be a preparation for heaven. And this consideration brings us to the most important point in the whole of Catholic teaching, the doctrine to which all the others whatsoever are related, an understanding of which is necessary if Catholicism is to be understood at all. We may approach it in this way. If we were offered a journey to another planet, we should be wise to refuse, because the breathing apparatus which we have by nature was made for the atmosphere of this world. In our atmosphere, it works. In a totally different atmosphere, it would not work, and we should die of suffocation. This illustration points the way to the truth, namely, that the equipment which is adequate to life in one world may not be at all adequate to life in another. And God has told us that our human nature, while adequate to the ordinary life of this world, is not adequate to the life of the world to come. If we were to enter heaven with only the powers of our human nature, we should no more be able to live there than, in the illustration I have given, we should be able to live on another planet with no powers beyond those of our nature. And just as we should need some extra powers of breathing, not contained in our nature, to live on another planet, so we need extra powers in our soul, not contained in our nature, in order that we may live the life of heaven. 
These powers which are not ours by nature, which are necessary in order that we may live a life totally above our nature, are what is called in Catholic teaching the supernatural life. All that has just been said of man applies equally to those purely spiritual beings, the angels. Heaven consists in such a relationship with God that no created nature by its own powers could be adequate to it. Just as men must receive powers above their nature if they are to live the life of heaven, so must angels. Angels had their testing. Those who remained in the love of God were granted the powers and admitted to heaven. Those who rejected God were fixed in eternal separation from him. But as we have already seen that our life upon earth is to be a preparation for the life of heaven, and that heaven is to be the logical conclusion of this life, and that, therefore, whatever is necessary to the life of heaven must be acquired by us here, because of all these things it follows that in this life we must obtain from God the supernatural life. Our life will be a success if, at the moment of death, we have in our soul the life above our nature, the supernatural life. It will be a failure if, at death, we have not the supernatural life. For if we have it, then we have in our soul the powers that would enable us to live the life of heaven. If we have it not, we lack these powers, and therefore will be totally unable to live the life of heaven. The road of our life, then, will lead us to heaven only if on it we have acquired the supernatural life, and at the end of it have retained the supernatural life. This, then, is the first general outline of our map. There is a road which leads man to that ineffable intimacy with God which we call heaven. The condition of walking the road aright is the supernatural life. It will be seen how every single thing that happens to man has its bearing on this supernatural life, and is a good thing or a bad thing according as it helps or hinders it. Every single doctrine of the Catholic Church is bound up with this, and every single practice of the Catholic Church is concerned with this and with nothing else, and apart from this has no meaning. Chapter 4. The Creation and Fall We have now seen the right road in its simplest elements. Our entry into life is at one end, heaven is at the other, death lies between. To understand the map, we need a knowledge of the purpose of life and a knowledge of the laws to be obeyed. To put our understanding to fruitful use, that is, to attain the end for which we are made, we need the supernatural life. These three things would be necessary, given a supernatural destiny, in any condition of the human race. And all of them must come as a free gift of God, or not at all. For us, then, the question simply is, how does God give these gifts, the life and the twofold truth, to man here and now? The answer to this question is the actual road of today, life as it must actually be lived by ourselves. But we cannot understand the strange, winding, arduous, almost incomprehensible road of today unless we realize that it is not the first road God laid down for us, that in the beginning there was a simpler, less puzzling road, and that by sin man dynamited it. Or from another point of view, man so damaged himself by sin that he could no longer walk it. A study of the first road and its ruin will make the road of today considerably more comprehensible. From the first man, Adam, we are all sprung. In him the whole human race was incorporated, since there is no one of us that does not come from him. He was the whole human race when God made him. He gave him, along with many other gifts, the three things necessary. He gave him the twofold truth, the knowledge, that is, of the purpose of the human race and of the laws by which it must be governed if it is to avoid disaster and he gave him the supernatural life. Adam, then, had the natural life that made him man, the union of spiritual soul and material body which constituted his nature as man, without which he would not have been man, and this natural life he had in a state of perfection, all his powers and faculties rightly ordered, body subordinate to soul, soul ruled by reason. 
he also had the supernatural life, the life above nature, that whereby he would be able to live the life of heaven hereafter, whereby even in this life his whole soul was supernaturalized, capable of a relationship with God altogether higher and holier than anything that could take its rise in man's merely natural endowments. The highest and holiest point of this relationship and the very condition of the supernatural life was for Adam, as it is for all men, the union of the soul to God by love. And while he had the supernatural life, God also exempted his nature from the law of death, from the separation of soul and body which is the natural termination of man's life on this earth. Now Adam is not to be thought of simply as an individual. He was the human race. God then, in the very beginning, and so to speak, as a matter of course, had conferred upon the human race the three gifts necessary. For Adam, the simplest elements of the road of human life were two, not three. His entry into life was at one end, and heaven was at the other. Death did not lie in between. That, simply and directly, was God's scheme. Man had knowledge of the end of his existence, knowledge of the laws by which he might attain the end, the supernatural life which put the end within his power. And man wrecked the scheme. Adam sinned, rebelled against God, and thereby lost the supernatural life, for this life cannot exist where the love of God is not, and love of God cannot exist where there is a rebellion against him. Scripture represents this sinful action as the eating of the fruit of the forbidden tree. There is some mystery here. But two things about it we know. The first is that it was a sin of disobedience to God. The second is that the devil played a part in it. It has already been said that among the creatures of God were certainly purely spiritual beings, the angels and that these angels had the same purpose as man, to attain heaven, and like man they had a period of testing. Some succeeded and are now in heaven. Some failed in the test, chose their own will rather than God's, and so lost heaven eternally. In the affairs of the human race, angels good and bad are mysteriously concerned. The good angels exercise a certain guardianship over men. The fallen angels, devils, are concerned to lead men into sin, and so cause them to fail to reach heaven. The devil then tempted man to commit his first sin. It is important to understand Adam's new condition. He had lost the supernatural life. He retained the natural life or the union of body and soul. The soul retained the natural powers of intellect and will. Supernaturally he was dead, for the loss of life is death. Naturally he still lived. But even his nature did not emerge from the disaster unimpaired. It lost the privilege of exemption from death. Henceforth man must pass through the gateway of death to reach his eternal destiny. More serious still was that man's nature lost its direction. Adam had sinned because he had chosen his own will instead of God's. He had swung his nature out of its true Godward direction and had introduced war into the very inmost part of his nature, into the union of body and spirit, body warring against spirit, spirit torn by war in its own powers. Thus then stood Adam, the individual man, the supernatural life lost, the natural life impaired because given a wrong direction. But still knowing the purpose of his being and the laws set by God for the governance of his life. But Adam was also, by God's dispensation, the representative man, and the effect of this original catastrophe upon the whole human race is measureless. As a mere physical consequence, the nature he had to hand on to his descendants was an impaired nature, strongly attracted to sin. Worse than that, the right relationship between God and the human race was broken, and heaven was closed to men. In him, the race lost the supernatural life, so that men thereafter, with one glorious exception, entered this world with the natural life of soul and body, so much was necessary that they should be of the human race, but without the supernatural life, which but for Adam's fall they would have had. This is what we call original sin, 
which is thus to be thought of not as a wrong done by us personally, not as corruption of the soul in its essence, but as the absence of that life which makes us sons of God and will hereafter open heaven to us. Thus then, through the spoiling of God's plan, one of the three elementary things was lost, and lost instantly. The other two were not lost so quickly. Adam, we may assume, passed on his knowledge of God's purpose and God's laws to his children, and they to their children. But as the slow centuries passed and men became farther removed in time and space from the first revelation, that happened to it which must always happen to a tradition of men unguarded by God. Error crept into it. Passion distorted it violently, and self-interest less violently, but no less certainly. Mere forgetfulness was deadlier than all. The nature of man still bore witness to God's purpose and God's law, but a witness that grew ever fainter. The fragments remained of the first revelation, but ever more broken and shapeless. The little company of the chosen people clung to certain fundamental truths, the oneness of God, for instance, and the certainty of a Savior to come. But only under pressure of endless reminders from God, and with heaven knows how much weariness and backsliding. And there came a time when the whole of the threefold gift almost seemed to have perished from the earth. The life man had lost in one great catastrophe, the truth man had frittered away. Men were born into the world without the supernatural life, with a nature hopelessly at war within itself. They could still, from the universe about them, reason to the existence of God. But even in this their reasoning was accompanied by a horde of errors, and they could have no certain knowledge of God's purpose or God's law. Chaos was upon them. Their foot was upon a road whose end they did not know, a road which could only be traveled with aids which they did not possess and could not for themselves obtain. And, be it repeated, heaven was closed to man. This is something different from having lost the supernatural life. For an individual might, by God's grace, regain the supernatural life. And yet, because he was a member of a fallen race, he could not enter heaven. Man is not simply an individual. He is a member of a community. And while the only great human community in existence was fallen humanity, to which as a race heaven was closed, the individual, however holy, was debarred from heaven. Not till the right relation between God and the human race was re-established, as God has promised Adam it would be one day, could the individual member of the race enter heaven. There was no question, of course, of a holy man being eternally debarred from heaven. But till heaven was reopened, he must be in a place of waiting. At last God did for man what man could not do for himself. He made the threefold restoration, and so built a new road for the human race. But consider what man had by his own act become, and it will be small wonder if the new road lacks some of the simplicity of the old. The first road had been planned for man as he came, all perfect from the hand of God. The second had to be planned for man as he was, with the wounds and stains that were upon him after countless ages of bearing the assaults of the world, the temptation of the devil, the warfare within himself. For the first road God had made man. For the building of the second road, God became man. Chapter 5. The Incarnation The human race, then, had broken its right relation of friendship with God. Men had lost the way because they had lost the life, without which the way cannot be followed, and the truth without which the way cannot even be known. To such a world, Christ, who had come to make all things new, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In those three words, way, truth, life, Christ related himself quite precisely to what man had lost, as precisely as a key fits a lock. In the precision of that threefold relation, we are apt to overlook the strangest word in the phrase, the word am. Men needed truth and life. What they might have expected was one who would say, I have the truth and the life. What they found was one who said, I am the truth and the life. 
This strange word forces us to a new mode of approach. If a man claims to have what we want, we must study what he has. If a man claims to be what we want, we must study what he is. With any other teacher, the truth he has is our primary concern. The teacher himself is of no importance save as the bearer of truth, and his work is done when he has given it. With Christ, the teacher is primary. He cannot simply give us the truth and the life, and then have done with us. He can only give us himself, for he is both. This point must be insisted on, not as a figure of speech, but as a strict fact. It is a map we are making, not a poem. And what is now being said, mysterious as it is, is strictly and literally true. Our study of the road of life has brought us to an examination of truth and life. We cannot understand the road if we do not understand them. But if Christ is the truth, then we must understand him. If he is the life, then he must live in us. Obviously, then, our map-making cannot progress till we are clear about who and what Christ is, because the road we are to travel depends even more on what he is than on what he did. The Two Natures of Christ Christ is God-made man, that is, he is truly God and he is truly man. He is God with the nature of God. He took to himself and made his own a complete human nature, a real human body and a real human soul. He is then one person, God, with two natures, divine and human. Nor is all this mere abstract matter of no real concern to us. Everything in our life is bound up with the one person and the two natures of Christ. We must grasp the central luminous fact, or everything remains in darkness. The distinction between person and nature is not some deep and hidden thing to which philosophy only comes after centuries of study. It is, on the contrary, a distinction so obvious that the smallest child who can talk at all makes it automatically. If in the half-light he sees a vague outline that might be anything, he asks, what is that? If, on the other hand, he can see that it is a human being, but cannot distinguish or does not recognize the features, he asks, who is that? The distinction between what and who is the distinction between nature and person. Of every man, the two questions, what is he and who is he, can be answered. Every man, in other words, is both a nature and a person. Into my every action, nature and person enter. For instance, I speak, I, the person, speak. But I am able to speak only because I am a man, because it is of my nature to speak. I discover that there are all sorts of things I can do, and all sorts of things I cannot do. My nature decides. I can think, speak, walk. These actions go with the nature of man, which I have. I cannot fly, for this goes with the nature of a bird, which I have not. My nature then decides what I can do. It may be thought of as settling the sphere of action possible to me. According to my nature, I can act. Apart from it, I cannot. But my nature does not do these things. I, the person, do them. It is not my nature that speaks, walks, thinks. It is I, the person. A man may then be thought of as a person who acts, and a nature which decides the field in which he acts. In man there is simply one nature to one person. In Christ there are two natures to one person. And our minds, used to the one nature to one person state of mind, tend to cry out that there is a contradiction in the idea of two natures to one person. But once it has been grasped that person and nature are not identical in meaning, once it has been grasped that the person acts and the nature is that principle in him which decides his sphere of action, then we see that, mysterious as our Lord's person and nature may be, there is no contradiction. God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, assumed, took to himself, a human nature, made it his own, not simply as something which he could use as a convenient sphere to act in, but really as his own, just as our nature is our own. 
In us, the relation of person and nature is such that not merely do we say, I have a human nature, as we might say, I have an umbrella, but person and nature are so fused in one concrete reality that we say, I am a man. So God the Son can say not only, I am God with a human nature to act in, but in the most absolute fullness of meaning, he can say, I am man. He does not simply act as man, he is man, as truly man as we. This one person has two spheres of action. Christ our Lord could act either in his nature as God or in his nature as man. Remember the principle stated a few paragraphs back, that it is not the nature that acts, but the person. Therefore, whether he was acting in his divine nature or in his human nature, it was always the person who acted, and there was only one person, God. Then this is the position. Christ is God. Therefore, whatever Christ did, God did. When Christ acted in his divine nature, as when he raised the dead to life, it was God who did it. When Christ acted in his human nature, as when he was born, suffered, and died, it was God who did it. God was born, God suffered, God died. For it is the person who acts, and Christ is God. The Atonement The next paragraph must be read with the closest attention, or the map will not be properly understood. Because Christ was God and man, he was able to effect the reconciliation of God and man. The human race had broken the first relationship of oneness by sin, and of itself the human race with all its imperfections on it could make no offering to God in reparation for its sin. Literally, the human race could not make reparation. Yet for the human act of rebellion, a human act of atonement was required. For the sin of human nature, only an act of human nature could satisfy. Yet this act of human nature, man could not perform. Christ was God and man. The acts he performs in his human nature were truly human acts. Yet because every action is of the person, they were acts of God, whose every act is of infinite value. Christ could make the necessary reparation. That particular action of his human nature, which Christ chose as an offering and reparation, a sacrifice, was his death. At the age of 33, he was crucified upon Calvary. This was the atonement. By it, the breach between God and the human race was closed. The race was redeemed from that condition of separation from God into which the sin of Adam, the representative man, had plunged it. Heaven, the final and eternal union of God and man, was once more possible to man. For even the holiest man of the time between Adam's fall and Christ's death was still a member of the human race, a member of the race that had lost oneness with God, and as such debarred from heaven. But by this remaking of the oneness, not only was life, the supernatural life, set flowing with new richness for the elevation of man's soul, but that life could now in heaven receive the full and complete flowering which before Calvary was impossible to it. Christ had come to save people from their sins. He had come that man might have life and have it more abundantly. These two purposes are in reality the same purpose. The effect of sin is the destruction of the supernatural life. A soul in sin is a soul that lacks the supernatural life. Sin is removed by the pouring into the soul of that life, as darkness is removed by the turning on of the light. So far, then, for the first part of Christ's mission, he had reconciled the human race to God. He had brought back the rich store of supernatural life. Christ as Teacher There remains to be considered the other need of man, truth. As we have seen, this involves as a minimum that man shall be taught the purpose of his existence and the laws by which he must live. Christ taught this necessary minimum, and much more. The laws will be discussed in detail in chapters 9 and 10. Here, notice only two things. A. He took the Ten Commandments given to the chosen people of Israel by God some 1,500 years before, most of them beginning with, Thou shalt not, 
and sum them up into two, both beginning, Thou shalt. For the first three commandments, which set out our duty to God, he expressed concisely as, Thou shalt love God. And the remaining seven, which set out our duty to our neighbor, he expressed equally concisely as, Thou shalt love thy neighbor. In other words, all the commandments lie implicit in this twofold love. b. Just as the commandments are summarized and made positive, so they are traced back from external conduct to the internal root of conduct, from actions, commanded or prohibited, to love, a state of the soul, and sins of the mind or heart or intention become as serious as sins of the exterior action. The yielding of the mind to lust not only is as bad as adultery, it is adultery. The yielding of the mind to murder not only is as bad as murder, it is murder. The essence of sin is now clear. It is the soul of man twisting itself out of the right relation to God. That is sin. Nothing else is. And the laws which express the right relation are all forms of love. So much for the moment for the laws to be obeyed. On the truths to be believed, including the minimum requirement of the purpose of man's existence, of what was in the mind of God when he made man, Christ is equally revealing and equally fundamental. The purpose of man's existence is to come to God. This includes a multitude of things, but principally, because man is an intelligent being, it involves some revelation of the nature of God. The more man knows of his goal, the more likely he is to make for it effectively. Thus he revealed to man that in the divine nature there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, that he himself was the second person, God the Son. Of this supreme mystery of the Trinity and of mystery in general, something will be said in chapter 8. Here we must consider not the revelation of God that our Lord gave by teaching, but the revelation of God that our Lord gave simply by being. Mankind has never been without means of acquiring some knowledge of God. In the universe, we have God's work before our eyes, and by examining any work, we can learn something of the workman. But, in practical fact, not much. We can learn more about a boiler maker by five minutes' face-to-face -face conversation with him than by five years' examination of the boiler he has made. Similarly, though we learn many things about God from contemplating the universe he has made, there is something a little remote and shadowy about such knowledge. And this, for the further reason that we can know nothing of what is involved in making a universe. But if we could see God not making a universe, but obeying his mother, feeling hunger, paying taxes, receiving insult, then instantly we should be on our own ground. For all these things we have done ourselves. Now because Christ was God, all these things are there for men to see. God did obey his mother, suffer hunger, pay taxes, receive insult. Christ then, in a sense, is God translating himself into our nature. And the difference between God acting in his own nature and God acting in ours is as great as the difference between a man talking in his own language and the same man talking in ours. For in the first case, such a man can convey some things to us, but rather by signs than speech, and we catch what he has to say haltingly and uncertainly. In the second case, he really speaks to us, and we know what he wants to communicate. Thus the fact that Christ is God takes on a new significance. As we first used it, it was as a fact about Christ. Now we see it as an even more revealing fact about God. Christ, acting in our nature, which he had made his, we can study and make our own. To realize that the knowledge thus acquired of Christ is true of God is altogether revolutionary. For only by learning that Christ is love have men learned that God is love. And that is almost the greatest gift of Christianity to the world. Our Lord's life upon earth seems to have been especially devised with the purpose of bringing man into the closest possible intimacy with God. The general outline of his life is sufficiently well known. He was born of a virgin, the wife of a carpenter of Nazareth, during the reign of Roman Emperor Augustus. Then, with the exception of one strange incident when he was age 12, there is silence till he reached the age of 30. 
Then came three years of teaching and the working of miracles. The leaders of the Jewish people turned against him and more or less forced the Roman governor to have him executed. He was nailed to a cross, and after three hours he died. On the third day he rose again from the dead, and after forty days he ascended into the heavens and vanished from the eyes of men. Within this framework there are two rich streams of human contact, a greater and a less. The greater, naturally enough, was through his mother. From her he had drawn his human body. If man may call him brother, it is solely through her. She lived with him throughout the years before his public life began. To please her he worked a miracle at Cana and began his public ministry sooner than he had meant. When he died he committed her to the care of John, the follower that he loved best. And this apostle, who became as a son to her, later wrote a gospel, in which from the beginning men have found a deeper insight into our Lord than in any other. It would have been strange had it been otherwise, if any man could have lived in such intimacy with the mother of Christ and had no richness to show for it. The second stream was through his apostles, the men he gathered round him, and prepared with especial care as the instruments for the spread of his kingdom among men. It is important to grasp here the mode of Christ's revelation of his own Godhead. Obviously, had he begun with the statement that he was God, the road would have been closed. Some would have disbelieved him. Those who believed would have been far too overcome with terror at the majesty of God and their own sinfulness to make any progress in human intimacy with him. What actually happened was that these men came to know him as men can only know one in whose company they constantly are, in every variety of circumstance. Gradually, or rather with sudden bursts forward followed by fallings away, they came to the feeling that he must be God, and ultimately to the full knowledge that he was. But before that time they had come to know him, to know him as a friend and not only as a master. From men who had companion with Christ for three years, even the discovery that he was God could not take away the certainty that he was love, so that God, too, must be love. The fruit of Our Lady's thirty years with Christ and the Apostles' three years with him, enshrined in part in the Gospels, is the very essence of the Christian tradition, woven into the very fabric of the Christian mind. If we compare the attitude to God of the most pious pagans with that of the Christian, the gulf is enormous. In the Christian attitude there is a warm personal devotion not to be found elsewhere. For other men have seen the works of God, but Christians have seen God. These two truths, God is love and law is love, are the two specifically Christian truths, unknown outside the Christian revelation. It is difficult to say which idea would have come upon the world with a greater shock. For outside Christianity, God has seemed to be a master or even a tyrant, but never love. And as a consequence, law has seemed to be a force, or even cruelty, but never love. And even inside Christianity, it is hard to hold, continuous and never dimmed, the idea of God and law as love. For there come moments when another face seems to be presented to us. Feeling or no feeling, we know. And we know because Christ was God. Here then in outline is God's answer to man's need. The human race needed first to be reunited to God, that heaven might once more be open to it. And second, it needed the life and the truth by which it might attain heaven once salvation became a possibility. Christ our Lord, God made man, made the act of reparation that reunited the human race with God and so made heaven a possibility, brought back for man the rich profusion of the supernatural life, and revealed to man not only the necessary truths of purpose and law, but a great store of truth besides. The next question is how man was to obtain what Christ had brought. Chapter 6. The Mystical Body of Christ so far we have seen that for the intelligent living of life, men need to know the purpose of their being and the laws by which they should govern their lives. And it has been established that man is totally incapable of finding these out for himself and can know them only if God reveals them. Further, we have seen that for the achievement of his purpose, namely to live the life of heaven, the natural life of man is not sufficient, that men need certain further powers in the soul, 
that these flow from the supernatural life, that men must acquire the supernatural life here upon earth, and again that they cannot acquire it for themselves, but can have it only if God gives it. These three things, truth, law, life, we have seen, would have been necessary in any condition of the human race. But the first man, Adam, complicated the position by breaking the friendship of the human race with God and so closing heaven to the race. Heaven then had to be made once more a possibility, after which the three original requirements would still be in force. Christ came to offer himself as a sacrifice to God in atonement for the sin of the race, and so opened heaven once more to man. And he brought the gifts man needed of truth, law, and life. On the question how men were to obtain these gifts from him, the last chapter closed. Now to this question, there is a very simple and satisfying answer. While he was upon this earth, Christ gathered a small band of followers, the disciples. Of these he selected twelve, the apostles, of whom one, Peter, was singled out from the others. Took them about with him, taught them, and when he was about to leave the earth, gave them a commission to teach the truths and the laws he wished men to know, to administer the sacraments by which his life might flow to the souls of men. Thus, when he left the world, he left his followers as a body among whom were officials, with Peter at their head, who could transmit the truth, law, life, men needed. By joining this body, then, men could receive from its officials what all men need. Christ extended their commission to all nations. That it might survive the ages, he extended it to the end of the world. That the teaching and the life might never fail, he promised to be with them in the work he had given them to do. Thus, then, you have his arrangement. His followers, still united with the successor of Peter, the visible point of unity, were to be one body till the end of time. And in that body they should receive teaching which is infallible, because Christ is with it, and sacraments which are channels of true life, because Christ is with them. The church, thus understood, is a great thing, a thing immeasurably beyond man's deserts, and fulfilling the three primary needs. But that is not all. He who sees only that is missing the depth of it. For observe that, as stated, it leaves two questions unsettled. The first is this. The work of God among men is a close-knit, deeply intertwined thing without loose ends. Why then should men share in the benefits of Christ's atonement? He offered a redeeming sacrifice. But where do men come in? How can they share in his act? And the second is this. Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The description of the church set out above would be perfect if he had said have, but he said am. What has become of that mysterious word? Let us consider the second question first. Christ is the life, the life that must live in us if we are to be capable of heaven. Christ then must live in us. How? How can one being live in another? Here we must follow very closely. We dare not abandon the phrase with a vague feeling that its general meaning is obvious and edifying, but that it will not bear too close inspection. For he comes back to this idea of his living in men again and again, literally scores of times. Like every word of Christ, this one demands the closest scrutiny. No words were ever weighed as his were, and if by chance we should forget that, St. Paul shocks us back to attention. I live, yet now not I, but Christ liveth in me. At the same time, our Lord constantly speaks of our living in him. There is then a twofold in. He must live in us, we must live in him. In our own natures, we find the clue to the answer. Our bodies are composed of countless cells, living cells. The cells, we say, are living in the body. It would be truer to the order of real values to say that the body is living in the cells. That is the right order of thought. The cells live not with their own life, but with the life of the body. There is one life of the whole man, and by it the cells of his body live. Somehow, then, we must be in Christ as the cells are in our body. 
then Christ will live in us as we live in our bodily cells. Here again, thought might falter, but St. Paul works it out very clearly. Christ living on this earth had a human body in which he worked among men. He taught with his lips, healed with his hands, converted sinners with the look of his eyes, gave supernatural life with his breath, made atonement with the suffering of his body. And all this, done through his body, was done by himself, God. He has left the earth. He is eternally in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But he still works among men in his body, no longer in his natural body, the body that was brought into being in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost, but in his mystical body, the Church, the body that was brought into being in the upper room after his ascension by the power of the Holy Ghost. The Church, then, is his body, linked to him really, organically, inseparably, as a body to its head. His life flows through the Church as my life flows through my body. My body has cells, and so has his. And as I live in the individual cells of my body, so he lives in the individual cells of his body. Membership of his church, then, means more than joining up with a useful organization from which many spiritual benefits may be derived. His church is, mysteriously, but really, his body. Joining it means being built into his body, that is to say, incorporated with him. Once we are thus incorporated with him, we ourselves in his body, he can live in us. That is the church, the living body of Christ. Because of this, Christ could say to Saul when he was persecuting the church, Why persecutest thou me? So Christ's own words, I am with you all days even to the end of the world, have a more immense depth of meaning than we at first knew. So we see the meaning of that strange word, am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. To be in the way, we must be in him. To possess the truth, we must possess him. To have life in us, he must live in us. To this idea of the church we have come, following up the second of the two questions left unsolved. It will now be seen that we have found the answer to the first as well. How can Christ's atonement be shared in by us? It is easy enough to see how we are involved in Adam's loss, for Adam is the representative man, the ancestor of all men. In him, by nature, all men were incorporated. But men may be incorporated in Christ too, not by nature, but by supernature. Not by birth, but by baptism, the first of the sacraments. That is the immense importance of baptism, repeated again and again by St. Paul. Being baptized in Christ, we have put on Christ. Incorporated with Adam by birth, which makes us men, we share in his loss. Incorporated with Christ by baptism, which makes us Christians, we share in his act of redemption. Both Adam and Christ are representative men. Adam because he is the first man, Christ because he is the perfect man. Adam was the head of the human race, Christ is the head of redeemed humanity. We come from Adam, we come to Christ. In this view of the Church, we see how all our needs are met. Incorporated, built into the mystical body of Christ, we share in the benefits of his atonement, we are reconciled with God, and to us, as members of redeemed humanity, heaven is once more open. From that Church, which is thus united with Christ, we receive Christ's teaching, so that we may know the truths bearing on the meaning and purpose of our lives, and the laws by which we may live rightly. In that Church, we are so united to Christ that the supernatural life pours into our souls, the whole of man's needs are thus met, those needs which have been kept constantly in mind from the beginning of this book. But there is a wider horizon yet. This mystical body of Christ is the Church, but the Church is not only a thing of this world. It contains not only its members still in this life, but also all who have died with the supernatural life in their souls. Whether having attained their goal, they are in heaven, or in final preparation for heaven, they are in purgatory. The mystical body is a growing body. All who die with the supernatural life are in it forever. Each new member is a new cell. 
There will come a point, as St. Paul tells us, when the mystical body will have grown to its perfect stature in some such way as a natural body reaches its fullest development. When that time comes, the human race will have achieved its purpose and the world will come to an end. For there is a purpose for the whole race as well as for the individual man, and the end of the world will not simply be a decision by God that the world has gone on long enough, but will definitely mean that the race has achieved its purpose. But the end of the world is not yet, and meanwhile the church is in the world, acting upon its members, acting upon the world at large. Not all its members here below are fully receptive of the life of Christ. Some, as we shall see in a moment, while remaining members, have totally shut off from their souls the stream of Christ's life. Thus the church, the actual visible church here below, presents itself under a double aspect. Insofar as it is Christ himself living in men, for the teaching of truth, for the promulgation of the moral law, for the life-giving work of the sacraments, it is perfect. Insofar as it is considered in its human members, even its officials, vivified in their varying degrees or not vivified at all by the life of the body, it is always short of perfection, sometimes very far short, but perfect it is one day to be. The Communion of Saints Meanwhile, see how the map of life grows in the light of this fact of the Church. We have to live our lives not as isolated units, but as members of a living thing, united organically with Christ and with all men, living and dead, who are in the love of God. This is the full force of the communion of saints, the oneness of all men in Christ. Because we are members of Christ's body, we are one with him, and also we are one with one another. In a body, one member can help another. If the foot be hurt, the hand can tend it. So in the mystical body, one man can help another by prayer and teaching and sacrifice. Here upon earth, our prayers for one another are thus fruitful. We can pray for the souls in purgatory. The souls in heaven can pray for us. It has to some been a difficulty that death should be no barrier to this stream of prayer. That one living Christian should pray for another, or ask another to pray for him, has always seemed obviously right. But within the body of Christ, death makes no difference. The soul of one who has left this world is not less a member of the same body as we, but is living more intensely with the life of Christ which we also share. If we should have asked him to pray for us during this life, we do so now more than ever. One striking characteristic of the Catholic Church is that real friendships do exist between her children still upon earth and one or other of the saints in heaven. Sin is a barrier between souls, death is not. There is this constant flow of prayer throughout the whole body, for we are not members simply of one society, we are members of one thing, a living thing. It is necessary now to see what all this comes to in practical effect upon us. We are cells in the body of Christ, so that he lives in us, and we have one life in common with all men, in this world and the next, who are in the love of God. But observe that all this refers to the supernatural life, the life by which man is to be able to live the life of heaven. Supernaturally, we, the cells, live with the life of Christ. But our natural life is not destroyed, and naturally we live with our own lives. Now it is part of our nature that we have free will, and part of our natural life to exercise it. We can do so in one of three ways. We can yield our wills wholly to God, or we can yield them to God but not wholly, or we can reject God. And according to the use we thus make will be our state in the mystical body. If we yield ourselves wholly to the supernatural life, the life of the mystical body, then we are living supernaturally at the fullest intensity. If our wills are not wholly yielded to God, then we hinder the flow of the supernatural life in us, and though we are living supernaturally, though we are still sharing the life of the body so that Christ really lives in us, yet that life is not present in its fullest intensity. And if, being once incorporated, that is, built into the body of Christ, our wills turn against God and reject Him for self, then we shut off the stream of life altogether, 
and though we remain in the body, we are dead cells, retaining our natural life, which is of no avail for salvation, but without the supernatural life. While we are still in this world, supernatural life may be set flowing again, as we shall see. But if at the moment of our earthly death we are thus dead cells in the body, we are cut out from the body and eternally lost. Sufficient has been said to show how our position in the church lays open to us life and the knowledge of truth and law. It remains now to examine the truth, the law, and the life in detail. Two chapters will be devoted to each of these. Chapter 7. Truth. The Teaching Church. We have seen that man, by membership of Christ's church, receives the three things necessary, truth, law, life. The next step is to examine each of these three in more detail. This chapter and the next will be concerned with truth. Christ gave to his church, in the person of its first officials, the apostles, a mass of truth concerning God and man. Concerning the nature of God, his threefold personality, his attributes, his purpose in making man, the means by which his purpose was to be achieved. This teaching, given by Christ to the apostles, was by them passed on to others, who in their turn passed it on. Some of it was, by the inspiration of God, written down. The part written down, what we now call the New Testament, was small in relation to the whole mass of teaching, but of priceless value. The Scriptures in thus inspiring men to write, God was continuing in the church what he had begun with his chosen people. This fact of inspiration marks off certain books from all other writings in the world. It involves a special relation of God to the human author and to the thing written, not to be found elsewhere. God so acted upon the mind and will of the author that what was written was what God wanted written. The inspired writing of the Jews, collected together in the Old Testament, were, in sum, a record of the creation and fall of man, God's dealing with fallen humanity, and the preparation for the coming of a Savior. The New Testament shows the Savior actually in the world, doing the work He came to do, and arranging for its continuation to the end of time. It falls roughly into three divisions. 1. The four Gospels, already touched upon in chapter 5, are records of Christ's life upon earth. 2. The Acts of the Apostles, and a handful of letters, written mainly by St. Paul, show the Church facing its first disciplinary and doctrinal problems. 3. The Apocalypse is a series of visions concerned mainly with the universal conflict of good and evil and its ultimate issue. Development of Doctrine The Church, then, by the time the last Apostle died, had all the mass of truth the Apostles had taught, the whole of it by word of mouth, a part of it in writing. She might have simply gone on, through the nineteenth century since, repeating what had been taught, reading what had been written. In this case, she would have been a preserver of truth, but scarcely a teacher. She would have been a piece of human machinery, but not a living thing, not the mystical body of Christ. In fact, she not only repeated what the apostles had been taught, she thought about it, meditated on it, prayed by it, lived it, and, doing all this, the church came to see further and further depths of truth in it, and, seeing these, she taught these, too. Everything was contained in what Christ had given the apostles to give the church. But, though everything was there, it was not all seen explicitly, not all at once. A rough comparison may make the position clear. A man brought into a dark room begins by distinguishing little. Then he sees certain patches of shadow blacker than the rest. Bit by bit he sees these as a table and chairs. 
Then, as his eyes grow accustomed to the obscurity, he sees things smaller still, pictures, books, ashtrays, and so on to the smallest detail. Nothing has been added to the contents of the room, but there has been an immense growth in his knowledge of the contents. So with the church. She has, generation by generation, seen deeper and deeper. This development in the church's understanding of what has been committed to her is not like anything else in the world. Science, for instance, progresses, but its progress consists to a large extent in discovering and discarding its own errors. The teaching of the church develops by seeing further truths. At every stage, the church adds something, but not at the cost of discarding anything. At every stage, all she teaches is true. At no stage does she teach all that is contained in the truth. This development, which we find in theology and nowhere else, combines two things. The work of men's minds, the overruling protection of God. In theology, as in science, progress comes by the minds of men working on what they have been taught. But left to themselves, men may simply make further mistakes. In science, they do so. In the teaching of the church, they do not. And the reason is that God intervenes to prevent the teaching of error by his church. God's actions, whether revelation or sacrament or miracle, are never labor-saving devices. God does not do them to save men the trouble of doing what they can very well do for themselves. In Revelation, for instance, God teaches men what they could not, at any rate could not with absolute sureness, find out for themselves. But having given them that, he leaves it to them to meditate upon it and arrive at a clearer understanding of it. He does not do their thinking for them. The Teaching Church But if we are to say that in the teaching of the church there are no mistakes, it is necessary to look a little more closely at what we mean by the phrase, the teaching church. The first teachers in the church were the apostles. Their successors are the bishops. The bishops are the teaching body of the church. Therefore, since God will not have his church taught error as to his doctrine, he will not allow the bishops to teach error. This or that bishop or group of bishops may give wrong teaching in theology, but what is taught by the bishops as a body cannot be wrong. On some given subject, it might be difficult to know what the bishops as a body do teach. In that case, they might be gathered together in a general council where they could state their teaching and so place it beyond doubt. But however we come by the knowledge, once we do know what the bishops as a body teach, we know the certain truth, for their teaching is guaranteed by God. And that is the ordinary way in which the Catholic does learn God's truth, from the teachers appointed by his bishop. But there is another way, an extraordinary way. The bishops as a body are not allowed by God to teach what is wrong on matters of faith or morals revealed by him. This is what we mean when we say they are infallible. But one of them, the head, Christ's representative on earth, the bishop of Rome, whom we call the Pope, is infallible, independently of the other bishops. And in case of doubt as to what bishops teach, a definition by the Pope himself is sufficient to inform us of the truth. But if the body of bishops, with the Pope at their head, are the sole infallible teachers of doctrine, they are not the only people in the church who are studying doctrine. Every Catholic does it to some extent. Theologians give their lives to it. Throughout the ages there has never ceased to be a stream of solid thinking on theology. Now, this thinking is the thinking of men. The result of their thinking may be the emergence of some truth not previously so clearly seen, but likewise the result of their thinking may be error. How shall men know which it is? It is for the bishops to decide. If it is true, then they adopt it and teach it. If it is false, God does not allow them to adopt it and teach it. 
An erroneous view might become current, even widely current. Sooner or later the teaching authority acts and the erroneous view is declared to be erroneous. A theologian who has fallen into error may persist in his error, become a heretic. The very task of refuting him leads to a closer examination and thus to a better understanding of the doctrine at issue. But the decision of the bishops as a body, or of the bishop of Rome as the head, is final. And that, as we have seen, is watched by God. He does not allow them to teach his church what is wrong. He does not add new teaching or fill their minds with new doctrine. For that they must use their minds in the ordinary way of man. But he prevents falsehood from being taught by them. To put this matter in a nutshell, the ordinary man has three courses open to him. He may say what is right, he may say what is wrong, or he may be silent. The infallible man has only two. He is prevented by God from saying what is wrong. He may therefore say what is right, or he may be silent. As to which of these alternatives he shall pursue in a particular case, what is to decide? As between teaching what is right and remaining silent, his infallibility will not help. It prevents him from teaching what is wrong. It can do no more for him. What then is to decide whether he shall teach right or remain silent? He can say what is right only if he knows what is right. If, that is, he has made the fullest possible use of all the means of acquiring knowledge. If he does not know the right answer, he must remain silent, and this might very well happen. A pope does not necessarily, by some miracle, know the whole of Catholic doctrine, the answer to every doctrinal question that could be raised. The Church, of course, is overruled by the providence of God, and if some teaching were at a given moment essential for the Church's well-being, God would see that we had it. But I am concerned here with the human machinery, so to speak, of infallibility. And it remains true that what he does not know, he cannot teach. But in no case can he teach what is wrong, for God will not let him, lest we, the members of the Church, be led into error. One further thing remains to be said. We believe what the Church teaches, because the Church is the mystical body of Christ, because, therefore, her teaching is the voice of Christ himself. Among the mass of the things she teaches, and the moral laws she propounds, some are, as it were, easy for the human mind, some difficult. For some we seem to see a score of reasons, for some we see no reason at all, some actually might seem to us against reason. But all alike we accept on one secure ground, that the Church teaches them. We accept the easy ones, because the Church teaches them, and we accept the difficult ones, because the Church teaches them. When a doctrine or a moral law is presented to us, we may ask what are the reasons for it, but only that we may better comprehend it, not that we may decide whether or not to obey it. For that, we only ask, does the Church teach it? For it is thus that Christ would have us know the truths by which our lives are to be lived. Chapter 8 Truth, the mystery of the Trinity. Thus, then, we are in a position to learn from the Church the truths Christ entrusted to her, and these truths cover not only the bare minimum of, of necessary things, purpose and law, but also much besides for the further enrichment of man's mind and man's life. All that is set forth in these articles is simply the general outline of it. It contains the great mysteries of the Trinity, the creation, grace, the redemption, the mystical body, the sacraments, hell, and heaven. Some of these have already been looked at, at least in part. The others will be looked at in later chapters. Here I wish to speak only of mystery in general, and of the greatest of all the mysteries, the Trinity. 
First of mystery. As used by theologians, the word does not mean a truth of which we cannot know anything. It means a truth of which we cannot know everything. Mystery there must be once we touch the nature of God. He is the infinite, the immeasurable, the limitless. We are finite, measured, limited on all sides. It is impossible that we should totally contain God in our minds so as totally to comprehend him. But by his loving kindness we are endowed with a nature that can know something of him, some little by its own powers, vastly more by what he tells us of himself in the mysteries he has revealed. But a mystery is not merely a truth about God which we cannot discover for ourselves and can know only if God reveals it. If it were only that, the subject would present no difficulties. There is the further fact already suggested, that even when God has revealed it to us, it remains a truth about an infinite being, and is therefore not fully comprehensible by us. And the trouble is that it first presents itself to the mind as an apparent contradiction in terms. Thus the mystery of the Trinity appears as a statement that there are three persons, each of them God, yet not three gods. Transubstantiation appears as a statement that what by every test known to man is bread is yet the body of Christ, and so with the others. Now contradiction is the enemy of thought. If any article of belief presented for the mind's acceptance appears to contain a contradiction within itself, then the mind cannot be at ease with it. So that a mystery of religion presents itself first to the mind, rather as a burden than as a light. Now in some cases, the sense of contradiction arises from a sheer misunderstanding of the doctrine and can be removed instantly by a correct statement. But in others it arises from a defect in the mind, the defect of superficiality. Two statements appear to be at variance. The mind scrutinizes them more closely and still cannot see how they are to be reconciled. Now the fact that the mind cannot reconcile the two statements may originate either in the statements or in the mind. Either the statements may be in fact irreconcilable, or the reconciliation may be at a depth to which the mind cannot pierce. This double possibility will always be obvious to a mind which has realized that the surface of a thing is not the whole of it. For the mind to proceed from the affirmation that it cannot reconcile two statements to the affirmation that they are in contradiction is legitimate only on one condition, that both are fully understood. If two statements are fully comprehended and yet cannot be reconciled, then there is a real contradiction, and one of them must be false. But in these mysteries of religion, it soon becomes clear that, that the truths concerned plunge rapidly into depths where the mind cannot follow them. It cannot see how they are to be reconciled, but realizing how immeasurably more there is in them than it can comprehend will not assume that one of them must be false. The result is that, though it may still find them irreconcilable, this ceases to be a burden to it. The sense of contradiction, the one burden the mind finds intolerable, has vanished. The discovery of its own limitation does not thus trouble it, and the discovery that there are depths beyond depths of truth is the strongest possible stimulus to the mind. For to call a doctrine a mystery is, is not to warn men's minds off it, as though it were something on which thought cannot profitably be employed. It is not to be conceived as a blank wall barring further progress. It is to be thought of rather as an endless gallery, into which we can advance ever deeper, to the great enrichment of our minds, but to the end of which we shall never come. Or better still, think of it as an inexhaustible well of truth, 
a well from which for all eternity we can drink our fill, yet which in all eternity we shall never drink to the last drop, so that we shall never know thirst. This infiniteness of truth is the most splendid assurance we can have of eternal happiness. For it means that the mind can forever progress, that it will forever be enriched by new drafts of truth, yet that it will never reach the end of truth. This inexhaustibility of truth is our guarantee against stagnation of the mind. It guarantees to our minds the possibility of progress through all eternity. Mystery, then, is not the prohibition of thinking, but actually an invitation to think. The mysteries revealed by God are revealed as food for the mind, not as dangerous things that should be left alone. Every mystery contains a central nucleus of truth that is comprehended, surrounded on all sides by things that we do not comprehend. Think of it as a globe of light surrounded by darkness. The man who rejects mystery is rejecting the central globe of light and accepting the impenetrable darkness. Whereas for the man who accepts it, the light grows and expands, sending longer and longer rays into the darkness around. Thus the doctrine of the Trinity, at first seen only as a sheer challenge to faith, grows steadily more luminous to the mind which accepts it, and comes humbly to the study of what the Church has seen in it. This truth that the Godhead is absolutely one essence, one single concrete something, yet that there are three persons owning the one nature, the one self-same identical nature, this truth not only grows more luminous as the ideas of person and nature are studied, as the relation of father and son and the spirit proceeding from both is meditated on, but throws a flood of light on the whole of our understanding of life, the doctrine that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons truly distinct is the supreme mystery revealed by Christ. Beyond it is no further mystery, for it deals with the innermost life of God. In a sense, man need never have been taught it apart from the Incarnation, for it is God in his unity who acts in relation to created beings, the threefold personality being a fact of his own inner life, of his own internal activity, of that activity which remains within his own nature and does not directly affect the beings he has created. But it is a property of love that it wants not only to know but also to be known by the person loved. God loving us wants us to know him in his deepest and most secret life, and so gives us here upon earth a glimpse of that truth which it is man's proper destiny to spend eternity in contemplating. And apart from that desire of God's to be known by man, the distinction of persons has in fact a direct bearing on man's life, since it was the second person, and not God and his threefold personality, who became man for our salvation. It is the supreme mystery in a double sense. It deals with the highest truth, and it is most inaccessible to the created mind. Yet certain elements of it can be grasped by us. In the first place, it states that in one divine nature there are three persons, the distinction between nature and person has already been discussed, and the reader might very well return to it before proceeding here. Summarizing what is there said, nature and person are both principles of action, but in different senses, the person being that which acts, the nature being that by which he acts. In man, nature and person coalesce in one concrete living being, but the attempt to analyze these two principles which in us are fused into one has two results. 1. It makes clear that we are far from reaching down into the depths of either principle. Their deepest depths escape us, and it would be a bold man who would dogmatize as to their uttermost possibilities. 
2. It at least suggests to us that the total expression of one nature and one person which is in us is not the only possibility. Person may be seen as the center of attribution in a rational nature, that to which the actions of a rational nature are attributed. In an infinite nature, might there not be more than one such center of attribution? Is the idea of one single mind and one single will three times focused totally self-contradictory? No one dare affirm that there is any such contradiction. The mind of man may say, I cannot see the possibility. It dare not say, I see the contradiction. To the mind thus faltering comes the revelation of God that it is so, and contained within the revelation are certain truths which help the mind to progress in it. God has not simply revealed to us a handful of words. The three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, each possess the one divine nature. They do not share it, they each possess it in its totality. It is important to grasp exactly what this means. Men, we say, have one nature, in the sense that they are all human, and human nature is one thing. But though Brown and I are of one nature, I cannot think with Brown's mind nor love with Brown's will. I must think with my own mind and love with my own will. So that, although in a general sense human nature is one, in the concrete each man has his own nature and acts in it. With the three persons of the Trinity this is not so. There is but one divine nature, one divine mind, one divine will. Three persons each use the one mind to know with, the one will to love with. For there is but the one absolute divine nature. Thus there are not three gods, but one God. The Christian revelation cannot allow the faintest derogation from pure monotheism. The three persons then are not separate, but they are distinct. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Ghost is God. But the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Holy Ghost, nor the Holy Ghost the Father. What distinction can there be in three persons who each possess the totality of one and the same nature? A distinction of relations. What then are these relations? For the relation between the first and second persons, the Gospel used two terms. The second person is the Son, and he is the Word. Both, by different approaches, bring us to the same truth. A son proceeds from his father by generation. One of the enormous difficulties in all discussion about God is that we are forced to use human language. Having been built up by the mind of man for the expression of man's experience, human language is necessarily inadequate for the expression of the divine. Yet it is the best we have. No higher is within our power. And provided the inadequacy is remembered, there is no harm done. But in addition to the sheer inadequacy of speech, for which there is no remedy, there is another way in which language can mislead, and this can be remedied by taking thought. Ideas which are in themselves quite simple get tied up in our minds with other ideas, because in human experience the two things are always found together. Thus, the moment we think of the words Father and Son, we think of the Father as older than the Son, as existing before the Son. But in applying the words to the understanding of God, we must get at the essence of the word and take away from it whatever ideas belong merely to the condition of human life. The relation of paternity in the Godhead is not modeled upon human paternity. On the contrary, human paternity is a shadow of the absolute fatherhood of the first person of the Trinity. Thus, a very slight examination of the idea of generation as such shows that the time element does not belong to it. 
Generation means simply the origin of a living thing from another living thing by communication of substance unto similitude of nature. Wherever in the origin of a being these two conditions are fulfilled, communication of substance, similitude of nature, then there is sonship. The time element proceeds not from the nature of sonship, but from the finite nature of man. He must reach a certain point of development before he can generate a son. But in an infinite being, to whom time is not, there is no such requirement. God the Father eternally generates God the Son, who is thus co-eternal and, as a consequence of likeness in nature, where there is nature infinite, co-equal. The term word, the word of the mind, which is thought, brings us to the same truth and, in a way, to a greater point of understanding. The first person, as thinker, thinks. Now that which is produced by the act of thinking, what we call the term of the act, is a thought. With men, the thought is more or less adequate to the object they are thinking about. But with God, whose intelligence is infinite, the thought is absolutely adequate to the object. In this instance, God's thought is of himself, and since it is absolutely adequate, it is the perfect image of himself, and so living, co-eternal, equal in all perfections, a person. Thus, even more clearly than sonship, this notion of the word shows the second person as the perfect image of the first, shows also how there is no new nature produced, for there is no more complete oneness of nature than that which exists between the thinker and the thought. Thus we have the first person and the second proceeding from the first by way of generation. But between father and son, or between thinker and thought, there is love. Here we must proceed with the greatest care. In our human experience, the term of an act of thinking is a thought, something that remains within the being of the thinker. And it is this thought and not the act of thinking which we conceive as the second person. Can we see that love likewise produces a term within the lover? St. Thomas tells us that we can. Though love tends towards a being outside itself, yet the act of loving arouses a state of warmth in the soul by which the being that is loved is present to the affections. This state is not the act of loving, but is produced in the soul by the act of loving, is what we have called a term of the act. And so it is in the love with which God loves himself, that is, with which the Father loves the Son and the Son the Father. The term of that act of love, like the earlier term of the act of thinking, is subsistent, is a person, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, the Holy Ghost. On this matter of the procession of the Holy Ghost, as breathed forth by God in an act of love, we cannot claim revelation. It is St. Augustine's magnificent contribution to the theology of that which we do not know by revelation, that the Holy Ghost is the third person of the Trinity, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Son. I have said that God acts upon creatures in his unity rather than in his trinity. Yet we have his own warrant for associating certain of those actions with one or other of the three persons. The Father, we say, creates, the Son redeems, the Holy Ghost sanctifies. The principle of this appropriation is quite clear. The external operations of God can be particularly attributed to one divine person rather than another if they are especially bound up with a relation of that person within the Godhead. That is, the persons may be spoken of as having relations to mankind similar to their relations within the Godhead. Thus, because the Son is brought forth by an act of the divine intellect, the works of wisdom are especially attributed to him. Because the Holy Ghost proceeds from the divine will, the works of holiness are attributed to him, since holiness is of the will, as wisdom is of the intellect. 
and so also are God's gift to men, since the Holy Ghost is love, and gifts are the expression of love. In thus setting down some of the elements of what God has revealed to us of his innermost life, it is clear that the mystery remains, but it is mystery in the sense indicated earlier in this chapter. The reconciliation remains invisible to us, but it is rather the invisibility that comes from too much light than from sheer darkness. Thus, it is an invitation to the mind. Already the mind is freed by it from the awful weight of God conceived as solitary in infinity, with no adequate object of his infinite love. And new richness comes into our contemplation of human nature. Thus human fatherhood is an immeasurably greater thing as a shadow of the divine fatherhood than it could ever be in its own right. The human soul is only the more like to God for its faculties of intellect and will, since in God thought and love not only exist, but subsist as persons, and the unity of the church takes on a new immensity when Christ proposes as its model the unity of the triune God. Chapter 9. Law and Sin Christ summarized the duty of man in the two phrases, Love God, love thy neighbor as thyself. We cannot have the supernatural life if we do not love God and our neighbor. But love must express itself in act, and our Lord left us not only the summarization, but also a great body of detailed rules concerning things to be done as an expression of the twofold love, and things to be avoided as contrary to it. These, then, are the laws established by God for the guidance of man's actions. The means by which men can learn what the laws are, and certain practical problems to which they give rise, will be examined in the next two chapters. Conscience Now many will think that this is precisely what conscience is for, and it is absolutely true that a man must in all circumstances follow his conscience. But an investigation of conscience will show that by itself it is not sufficient, that man has not within himself an infallible teacher as to what is right and what is wrong. Conscience is not a faculty or permanent part of man. It is loose speaking to say, I have something on my conscience. It would be more accurate to say, I have something on my soul. There is the same difference between conscience and soul as there is between a punch and a fist. The punch is an action of the fist, a thing the fist does. Similarly, the conscience is an action of the soul, a thing the soul does. Precisely defined, conscience is the practical moral judgment of the intellect, the intellect being simply the soul itself considered in its activity of knowing things. Whenever I am asked a question, the answer is a judgment of my intellect. Now the intellect makes many judgments, and conscience only differs from the others by its special scope. If I answer the question, did Richard III murder the princes in the tower? My answer is a judgment of my intellect, but it is purely a historical judgment, not a moral one. Therefore, it is not my conscience. If the question is changed to, ought Richard III to have murdered the princes? My answer is again a judgment of my intellect, and this time it is a moral judgment, a judgment on right and wrong. But it is not my conscience, for it is not a practical moral judgment. That is to say, it is not concerned with what it would be right for me to do here and now. But if the question is again changed to, Ought I to murder the man next door whose manners are so maddening? The answer is not only a judgment of my intellect and a moral one, but also a practical one. In other words, conscience is the answer given by my soul when I am faced with the question, What ought I to do? What would it be right for me to do in this particular matter? Yet, you say, is that not a sufficient guide? Unfortunately, no. For conscience is a judgment of my intellect, and therefore, like any other judgment, it can be wrong. Conscience is not universally infallible. It is often firm and definite in its answer, but an answer may be firm and definite and yet wrong. By what does the soul judge if it has no teacher outside itself? 
By what standard does it decide what is right? The answer is that the law of God is imprinted on man's nature, and by that he judges. In other words, God's laws for men are not something totally outside his nature. They correspond to something God has already placed in his nature. But in the course of ages, man's nature has grown distorted in all sorts of ways, and any distortion in man's nature will mean a distortion in the thing imprinted on it. The moon, falling on a perfectly still lake, will give a perfect image of itself. But let the lake be ever so little ruffled, and the image will be broken up into small pieces. Let the lake be really ruffled, and the image will be no more than broken sparkles of light scattered here and there. It is still from the moon that these sparkles come, but no one looking at them could form a picture of the lovely luminous globe of the moon itself. Thus, even where the distortion is greatest, no man's nature is without some trace of God's law still imprinted, but it is not always easy to read. If we could take the general consensus of the conscience of the race as a whole, it would probably be found to be in accord with the greater part of the natural moral law. But the individual conscience, though probably also in major accord, is apt to show startling variations, from country to country, and from man to man. Thus, even on matters which simply concern the right use of man's nature, conscience, lacking information from without, can give contradictory answers. But on the most important questions of all, those which are concerned with man's supernatural destiny, the unaided conscience gives no answer at all. On the question, ought I to divorce my wife, conscience, apart from God's teaching, gives different men different answers. But on the question, ought I to be baptized, conscience, apart from God's teaching, gives no man any answer. If then there is no teacher capable of giving us God's law, we are left with nothing but this internal judgment of our own, which on the most obvious questions is capable of being wrong, and on the most important questions can only be silent. A man must follow his conscience, the judgment of his intellect as to what is right and wrong. But the very supremacy of conscience renders it vital that conscience should be instructed. Consider man's position. There is in him no internal faculty that tells him with, with either certainty or completeness in every situation that can arise what things are right and what wrong. Yet without such knowledge, how can he so act as to reach his goal? The task of achieving the end for which one is created is like any other task. It must be done in the right way. Certain actions will help the achievement, certain will hinder it. We can only know if we are told. God who made us has told us. His church, which enunciates his truths, likewise enunciates his laws. Nor is conscience thereby annulled. Conscience is the practical moral judgment of the intellect. Now the intellect which knows that the church is giving God's law will naturally judge that it is right. The Catholic who unquestioningly accepts the moral law as taught by the church is following his conscience unswervingly. Sin the Catholic, therefore, knows the law of right action, but knowledge is not enough. A man may know and yet disobey. Such disobedience is sin. Sin is, quite simply, breaking God's law, and in that lies its enormity. The breach of God's law may be a small thing or great. It may be a failing in a comparatively trifle, silly and weakening to the soul, or it may be a definite rejection of God. The first sort, venial sin, is still sin, yet it will not break the friendship that exists between the soul and God. It will not, therefore, damn a man's soul. The second sort we call mortal, having committed such a sin, to die without repentance means eternal damnation. We shall return to that. The essence of sin's gravity, as I have said, lies simply in its breaking God's law. It is blank ingratitude to God, to whom all men owe so much, to whom Christians know that they owe so immeasurably more than the rest of man. It is incredible stupidity. Rebellion against God is one of the most ludicrous things in the world. For whether we are obedient or rebellious, we are at every moment totally in the hands of God. He made us of nothing. By his almighty power he keeps us above the surface of our native nothingness. Without his concurrence, we could not act at all. We could not even defy him. 
The sinner, as it were, stands up in the hand of God, sustained in being by that all-powerful hand, defying God, but in his very defiance, using the power which God has lent him, and which God could at any moment withdraw from him. Law and Freedom The fact that the essence of sin is offense against the law of God sometimes, in fact most often, misleads the sinner as to the true nature of sin. He imagines himself in a small field, bounded by a fence put there to prevent him from breaking out of the field to sample the rich possibilities of life outside. Here, he says, am I, a being full of the possibilities of development, yet my development is checked at every turn by some absurd law. This view arises from a failure to understand the nature of God's laws. His laws are no mere whims, like the laws of some stupid despot. They are, on the contrary, the expression of God of his own knowledge of man's nature and destiny. He knows the kind of being man is, for he made him. And for the same reason, he knows what man is made for. God's laws, then, are a precise statement of how this particular kind of being may avoid destruction and reach his particular goal. The man who makes an engine is not limiting your freedom when he tells you not to run it beyond a certain speed. He knows that if you do, you will smash the engine. And if you should plead that your nature demands more speed, that you still feel stifled by such slow running, he may very well grow impatient. He knows what speed is right for the engine, for he made it. God's laws, then, are best thought of as maker's instructions, directions for the right use of ourselves. His prohibitions warn us of wrong ways of using ourselves or our neighbors. Earlier, I used the simile of a razor to illustrate the point that to misuse a thing was to destroy it. Emancipate the razor from its old humdrum task of removing hair from the face, defy the maker's statement that razors are only meant for shaving, use your razor for chopping wood, and you will have a piece of twisted metal, fit only for the scrap heap. God's law is not something altogether apart from us. The knowledge of it may have to come from the outside, but the law itself is, in a special sense, inside us, for it is a statement of the way we are made. And any action against it is therefore an action against our own nature and is consequently destructive. The act of running counter to God's law is sometimes justified on the ground of, quote, self-expression. It certainly is not an expression of the self, for God, who made the self, has declared that such action is contrary to its nature. And a man who commits sin, any sin, is to that extent less of a man, just as a motor car, whose engine has been used in violation of its maker's instructions, is less of a motor car. To return to the argument of an earlier chapter, freedom results only from doing what one ought. The connection between law and freedom is absolute. Yet we sin. Our will is so made that it can choose only what appears to us as good. But two different and contradictory things may both appear to us as good from different points of view. To abstain from meat on Friday is good because God's church demands it. To eat meat on Friday is good because our body is very fond of meat. Between these two goods, the will can choose. Its tendency, since the fall, is to choose the more immediate, what we may call the nearer good, the one we like. To take a matter of more importance, if a married man falls in love with a woman who is not his wife, then two mutually exclusive courses of action will both seem to him, from different angles, good. To remain faithful to his own wife will seem good because God has forbidden adultery. To be faithless to her will seem good because his lower nature would find pleasure in the sin. Again, the will must choose, and its tendency, against which it must struggle, is likely to be in the direction of the lower pleasure. Temptation, however tremendous, is not sin. It is not even venial sin. But for the will to yield to it, to choose the sin, even if it never proceeds to action, that is sin, as offense against God and a contradiction of one's own nature.